If not, if you have a Bible today and you want to read along with us, I encourage you to do so. Uh, we're going to take a scripture reading from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 4. The book of 1 Samuel chapter 4. And as most of you know, we've, we've been preaching on a certain topic the last two weeks. And we're going to conclude that this week is at least my intent. And I'm not reading from the book of Nehemiah, obviously, which is where we've been uh, through this last two weeks, but I feel like as a bookend, this is an appropriate text and and thought that we want to bring before you this morning regarding our thoughts. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12 to try to save a little time uh, reading-wise. um, the important context that we'll just very briefly mention is that uh, Israel is fighting and warring with its most common, or at least what I think of when I think of the Old Testament, most common enemy, and that's the Philistines. And they uh, lost a battle to the Philistines. And so they're trying to do something as they're going to go into battle again to encourage the troops, but also to bring about victory. And so one thing that they're trying is they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, and it certainly brings a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to the battle. But unfortunately, they lose the battle uh, terribly. And I believe it was another 30,000 troops are lost, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken back to the Philistines' camp. And... That's where we kind of pick up our reading in verse 12 into the end of the chapter in verse 22. So verse 12 of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, it says this. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came to Eli, excuse me, and when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died." For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, or excuse me, Phineas' wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son." But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, 
The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. That will conclude our reading this morning and forgive some of the mistakes that I made in the pronunciation of some of those words uh, today. As we've mentioned the last two weeks, uh, the title of these last few weeks, if we had one for the entire series of sermons that we've tried to preach, is Let Us Rise Up and Build. And today what we want to focus on is, I believe, entailed in this story, and I guess I would give a subtitle to this message is, What Are We Fighting For? Or in other words, what are we trying to build, to use the analogy in Nehemiah? I think that's a, an appropriate question. Um, I suppose in anything that I do, and I would say probably most people are this way, I like to have a concrete goal. I like to know what am I doing and why am I doing it? And then routinely as I go about whatever that I'm doing, I like to gauge where am I at? Have I gotten sidetracked? Have I lost sight of what the original intent was? Has my enthusiasm waned for whatever reasons that it could have? But constantly what the fuel that motivates driving towards that goal is that remembrance of here's what I'm doing and here's why it's so important. And so I I suppose I would ask that question to all of us, both in a broad sense regarding our life, but in a more narrow sense when it comes to our activities, our religious activities, to put that in a broad term. What is it that we're ultimately driving toward? What is the goal? I, I feel very often that churches suffer that people's spiritual lives suffer because they continue going about habit and routine, things that are right, things that are good. They continue to perform obedience towards God's word and his commands and his laws. But those things, those actions become very hollow from what their intent was meant because rather than focusing on the end, those things are meant to lead us towards the end becomes just performing those things in their hollow fashion. And so I ask this morning, what is it that you are striving for? What ultimately in your life, where can you get to the place where you say, this is what I've been striving in life to get to? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning talking about how career can and and seeking out building our career or our accolades or college degrees or money. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning focusing on how those things can become our goals, how Satan can do a bait and switch and we can think I want to do these things because God's word tells me as a, a man I need to provide for my family and I want to do that well, that I ought to have integrity in a place of business. All of those things are true but they also become very tempting that they become the end goal and we supplant why we were doing it for selfish gain. I'm going to spend a lot of time focusing on that this morning other than to say, let's not do that. But even coming into church, what is it that we're striving for as a church? 
Because the Bible gives us a whole litany of commands, things that we ought to do and strive for. But I'll contend this morning that throughout all of Scripture, that there is one thing that is superior to all, and that all of the things that God has placed in His Word and that we preach on, that we strive to to encourage one another and exhort one another to do, there is one thing that is superior to all of it. And that that one thing ought to constantly be guiding what we're doing and breathing life into the actions that we're performing. I could not, whenever Sister Ashley led the first or that third song here that we sang, I could not have found a more appropriate song to what I feel like I'm preaching on this morning. Abide with me. You know, more than people being saved, I want God to abide with us. And I don't think it's an either-or proposition. But more than anything else, what God's people from the very beginning, Adam before the fall, all the way up until the last human being in heaven, makes it there. That the core purpose for why we were designed and what we ought to strive to find above all else is that God would be in our midst as often as possible. Here, this this story just seems strange. Seems like such a strange story. But if you understand what's taking place, the way that these people react make perfect sense and ought to be in a similar fashion the degree to which we also respond. You see... The temple, or or excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant was something that God commissioned in Exodus chapter 25 that ought to be built during the time of Moses. And the idea in Exodus 25, if you go back and read, is that he was to, in a very specific way, build the Ark of the Covenant and that that is the place where the people of God, that's where God's presence would dwell and where he could come, Moses and any intermediary could come and there be directly in the presence of God to communicate the needs of the people and to receive the commandments. But I would even say, superior to all, behold the glory of God. In Exodus chapter 40, he expands that and it becomes a tabernacle. And I'm not going to explain all those things this morning because I don't want to get bogged down into these little points and miss the big one. There's a tabernacle. Think of it like a a bigger tent area, an area bigger than just this little chest of the Ark of the Covenant where God was going to dwell. And there the Bible teaches us in the very last chapter of the book of Exodus that the cloud of fire by day, and or excuse me, fire by night and the pillar by day, that it was going to hover over that place and that God, again, his presence would be there so that when they came into the presence of God, they would be able to behold discernibly his greatness and receive direction as to where they needed to go and when they needed to leave. Then we go into 1 Kings chapter 8. And Solomon takes the initiative based upon the desire of his father David to build God a temple. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 8 that 
He dedicated that temple, and it was a sacred place where they placed the Ark of the Covenant, and there was very specific design of way that God wanted it designed. But again, the key and the core of it all was that was the place where God was going to dwell. And when the high priest would come in there, and when other priests would come in to perform their routine duties before their God's literal presence was there. His glory was manifested. And in this particular case, what we find during the time when the tabernacle was around is that they take the Ark of the Covenant as some, I can't discern from the reading whether they were looking at it as this token or whether they genuinely believed that God would help them because he was in their presence. Irregardless, what happens is the Philistines win and the presence of God is removed from his people. Now, if you notice, when the woman has her child, she names it Ichabod. It's how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. The word kabod in Hebrew means something that is luminous, something that is bright. And what we oftentimes translate that word, both in the Old Testament and its equivalent in the New Testament, is glory. And that's a hard word to pin down what the exact meaning is. But I'll give you a little help here. So she's saying the word, the the prefix with the I means no. So no glory or the glory has been removed from Israel. But the base word, the root meaning of the word kabod is weight or weightiness, substance, Now, I think you tie all those things together and you begin to peel back the meaning of this. And what it's saying about the children of Israel is that God's presence was the weighty part of who they are. It was the substantive substantive part of what made them a distinct people apart from any other nation that, that ruled in that area or in any other parts of the world. And here this woman hears, and here Eli is anxiously waiting. Now notice what the text told us, is that Eli is anxiously waiting. And what was he nervous about? Well, his sons were there, and you would think that naturally you would be nervous that your sons are at the battlefield, that they could possibly live their life. But the Bible says that that 98-year-old man is anxiously waiting, and he's fearing the state of the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. You know, more important than any single member of this church or every member of this church combined is that the presence of God is here. We know because we live in a fallen world and because it's self-evident that people will come and go. And I want to encourage you this morning when we think of prayer requests, when we think of things that weigh heavy upon our hearts and upon our minds that the older people, the sicker people among us, we need to make it a routine that we care about them and show compassion, that we reach out to them. I I couldn't help but but think of uh, the the good things that have been done since the the coronavirus broke out and, and how I'll call somebody from the church and yet they talk about how multiple other people has already called or cards that they received. And that's such a wonderful good thing that unites us together. And yet... Let's also consider for a moment that the more weighty thing 
about our gathering and about what takes place and about the lives of each one of us is not the health and well-being of each other, but it's that God's presence is found in each one of our lives and in each one of our homes. I would sign up for a life as a paraplegic if God was with me and I could sense his presence, and I could sense his purpose, and I could know that in the things that I was doing and in the life that I was living, that God would promise me that he would be with me versus a life of complete health, striving in all the religious uh, things that you can possibly do, and yet God detaching himself from me. I don't want a life like that. I have seen throughout so much of my childhood people who have the cloak of religion, but the weighty substance of why they're meeting together has been lost. I don't want that. I have zero interest. God knows my heart. I have zero interest in coming into church and going constantly through the motions. No, what I desire is to meet in a place where God meets with us. And yet, that's not all he does. I don't want it limited here. What I would prefer, what I desire in my heart, what I know you desire in your heart is that for our gathering to be a place where his presence in our life throughout the week merely spills over here. And that's the way that it's intended. How do we know that God is beginning to meet with us? What are the evident signs that God is meeting with us? It's not just limited to the expressions that we see here. But it's that in those expressions of what we're talking about when we get up and testify and the burdens that we're relating and the prayer requests that we're making, that those are discernibly indicative of what has happened throughout the week and God's working in our life throughout that week. You see, when God is abiding with us, people begin to mourn over their own sin a lot more. When God is abiding in us, we begin to sense his intimate molding of our character and of our lives, things that perhaps character flaws that we routinely carry out or weaknesses that we have or temptations that we've often fallen to, we begin to see God in those daily activities restraining us, bringing back to our minds when we're about to fall into those same habits. God is beginning to help us and refine us. He's beginning to change us. Those temptations to lash out in anger, those temptations to... uh, be uh, condescending to people or uncompassionate, those temptations to gossip, God begins in those moments to bring to our heart and mind that if he's going to continue to abide with us, that we've got to restrain those things and do away with those things. And we begin to see the evidence of his presence with us in subtle ways that are difficult to fully encapsulate in an explanation. We mourn over sin. We feel his molding. We see people differently. I believe in the free market. I went to school, got an economics degree. I think there's good thing in the free market. But I also say there's a downside to the free market. And it's not necessarily of an economic sense. It's a way that we tend to begin to view people and things. The downside to the free market is this. We begin to look at people as human capital a means 
to an end instead of the end in themselves. So we ought to be careful. Your painter is not just there to do a good job painting your house. And if he doesn't, that you're going to complain and whine and groan and, and diminish or, or, or discourage him or talk down to him. No, that doesn't mean you can't expect excellence. That doesn't mean you can't negotiate. That doesn't mean you can't talk about the job that he's done and encourage him to do better. But realizing that he's not just a means to paint your house, but you see that man coming into your home as an opportunity. You see that man as a living soul created in the image of God and that your calling is that in the same sense that God is abiding in your life and making his purposes in life or, or his, his purposes and presence known in your life that you desire that man to have the same. One way that we notice the presence of God and his abiding in our life is that we begin to see other people differently. It's not just the gas station tenant who checks me out when I get my coffee. It's not just the annoying people in the traffic jam. It's not just all of these various things, but when God begins to abide, have you had those experiences when the habits that have creaked up in your life, but God has been with you, perhaps it's during a series of revival services where you felt the presence of God more potently and more clearly throughout the week, and then all of a sudden it's in the middle of the week, and you start seeing the world just slightly differently. You have the wonder for the first time that that person in power that's above you instead of thinking of them as your boss, as somebody you have to please, as somebody you're afraid of, you begin to think of them as they have a soul. And they're mean, and they play these political games, and they treat us in a condescending fashion, and they, they act these ways because ultimately they don't have the presence of God with them. Or what we begin to do, to do the thing that Jesus taught in Matthew and the Sermon of the Mount, which has never been taught, and that is we pray for our enemies. You know, that's when you really know that God is transforming the inside of you. Is the people that we all have, we're supposed to love all people, but the Bible never says we have to like all people, right? And there are some people we just don't like. I wish it wasn't that way, but the reality is it is that way. And when those people who tend to annoy you, who tend to frustrate you, who you tend to try to dispel their presence at any chance possible, when you're walking with God and God imputes to you the way that he sees those people and that he loves those people as much as you love the dearest people in your life and he creates in your heart this affinity and love for them and a compassion to help them, that's when you know God's abiding with you. We mourn over sin. We desire his sanctifying and his molding. We look at people differently. People whom we've held grudges against for years and years and years of our life, God helps us to find compassion and forgiveness for. That's when we know God is beginning to... Notice how significant those things are. I, I fear sometimes that we have relegated God, uh, discerning God's presence to fluttery feelings. 
And I'm not saying there are not times when God gives us a peace that passes all understanding that you could easily express it as, you know what? I had a peace and there was this fluttering feeling that came over me. That's certainly the case when God manifests himself. But I'll say when he abides with us, it's a deeper work than a feeling. Have you ever had God's presence in pain? When he begins to cut certain things, he he attempts to purge you of something inside of you. Something you've needed to let go of for a long time and it's painful so painful that you want to grit your teeth and and resist with all of your might and yet you're aware God has allowed you to know this is me, I'm doing this work to refine you. God's presence is often manifest in the pain of those things. Here, Eli falls off backwards, breaks his neck and dies. This woman is in such a grieving state. And the first thing that it mentions of why she begins to grieve was not the death of her father-in-law or her husband. The first thing it says is when she heard that the Ark of the Covenant was lost. And then it had such a profound effect on her. Notice it didn't say she named her grandson Eli. Didn't say that. It didn't say, you know, that's what oftentimes we would do. Somebody, I've done that with my three sons, that all their middle names are are named after people who have had an impact on me. She didn't name him Eli. She didn't name him Phineas after his father. But she birthed that son, and what had taken place that same day had such a significant effect on her, she named him the glory of God has departed. Do you realize that's how important the presence of God is to us It is significant enough that everything that we do, I want to see people saved. I want to see people baptized and discipled into this church. All of that is second to God's presence being with us. Because if God's presence is with us, those things will take care of itself. And so what do we do? See, because what we're talking about this morning is we've spoken a lot in, in types and shadows over these last two weeks. We talk about this in a metaphor of building a wall. And we look back to the time of Nehemiah and we see this man and all the different logistics that are involved in him building the wall and who he was. And we indirectly compare it to us today. And then the second week we talk about the opposition and how the opposition can fight against us in the ways that which it fought against them and how we need to prepare, be prepared to fight it. But then this week, we kind of want to divorce ourselves from that type and jump right into what we are striving to do. And that is, we want God's presence to be with us. And now the question is, how do we get that? How do we get God's presence? What exactly are we fighting for? And then how do we fight to obtain that? And I'll confess to you this morning, God is not this joint that you can, I remember sitting at the doctor's office one time and I was sitting there and he took a little hammer and he began to tap on my knee and without my consent, my knee would just go like this. My leg would just pop up. You know, God is not that way. 
There is not some tool that we can use where we can just knock God in a certain way and then he's automatically gonna respond in a predictable way. God is an infinitely wise person who is completely autonomous and is not going to be guilted or coerced into doing what we desire to do. But God tells us there are, there are certain groups there are peoples that I long and yearn to be with. And so really what it involves is going to God and saying, God, shape me and shape our church into the type of people and church that you want to be a part of. We could point out all these different qualities and characteristics. But the reality is, Old Union is going to look different than any other church that is speckled in Bowling Green or all across the world because we're all, as a group, put together different than all of them. And what God has in mind for us to do and how we're to do it and how, you know, I've, I've noted very often I've helped in revival here and I felt the presence of God in revival here at times. And when God manifests himself at Old Union, it is very distinct and different from how he manifests himself at the church that I was just a member of at Friendship. Because the people are different and how he manifests himself to the people and what he calls the people to do and the way he shapes those people are different than what he does to us here. And so we can look to different churches and we can look to times gone by and saints gone by and see certain general characteristics and say, God, I want to be able to pray in a fervent fashion as they do. Or I want some other general characteristic. But ultimately, there is not a template we can look to. There is not a certain performance that we can do to get God to respond. Rather, what we must do is come to God with an honest heart, beseeching that whatever it is that he would shape us into, however, Whatever it is that he would carry out his work through you individually within this church and through this church to the rest of the world, however he determines to do it, that we would like Isaiah, that we would like Jeremiah, just say, God, here I am, send me with no strings attached. If you will be with me, you can cut me asunder any way you want to. I just want your presence. And in some cases... That is a painful thing that requires us to divorce ourselves from things that we have loved for a very long time. But friends, what we seek to gain is worth more all the things we could ever lose because what we gain is God himself. I love the fact that when they were distributing the land during Joshua's time, I love this. That the priest's inheritance, they didn't get one in land. You know why? Because their inheritance, their inheritance was him. They didn't complain about that. And I tell you this morning, I don't complain about that. If God will be with us, I don't care all the new fads that are going on in religion and in different churches. It's peculiar as I'm moving down here and I'm telling people at my work, you know, I'm coming out of this church. God's called me to pastor. They've called me to pastor. The, the first question that everyone always asks, how big is it? And I tell them, uh, 80 to 100 people. I don't really know because we've had COVID restrictions and so I'm not sure all the people that normally come. And they always feel sorry for me. And they always try to 
to, to speak in the sympathetic tone, well, maybe you can get more people from coming out. Maybe you can build the church up. And I thought, I really don't care. And I mean that with, I, I don't really care. I mean, if, I, I want more people to get saved. I want more people to get baptized and join the church, but here's where I would even prefer more so than people adding to our number. What I would prefer is that God adds to our number and then sends them out. That what we do is we become a hub for somebody who God is going to save them. God is going to uh, bring them to be a part of us. He's going to disciple them using our church. And then they're going to get a burden to go to other parts either of this community or other parts of the world. And we're going to send them forth as the Great Commission calls us to. And they're going to establish mission work. And they're going to plant churches all throughout different parts of our community and the world. And our church always stays at 75 to 100 people. But what we know is that God's presence is in us, working in us to do things outside of us. What a wonderful thing for a church to be able to give God thanks and take great satisfaction in the fact that, yes, we have stayed the same, and perhaps we've even lost a few members because those members felt burdened to go somewhere else and do the work of the Lord somewhere else. Sign me up for that if God's presence is with us in that. I don't feel embarrassed. I don't feel saddened at all if God is with us. And yet the fad today that I will even contend is slowly creeping into even God's churches is this passive mentioning about more people. How was service today? And the response is, well, we had a lot of visitors. Sometimes I want to say, that's not what I asked. Right? And I don't mean that to be trite or, or disrespectful. But when we begin as a fallback because God's presence has been removed from us to try to take some conciliation in the fact that we have people. I don't want that. I don't want people. I want God. What are we fighting for? What are we building towards? God's presence with us. And when he gets here on a routine basis, and when you start noticing in your daily life, God's, the, the, the norm for you, realize this is something God desires. It's not an anomaly. It's not something that we can think about in times past when the world was less busy. But God's norm for your life is that daily you sense his presence and his subtle uh, purposes in your life every day continuously for as long as you live. And yes, there are periods of valleys where you get far from God, but those are few and far between. And yes, there are times where you really strongly feel his presence, but that the constant norm is that you're always in a, you know, pray without ceasing, right? You know, that sometimes can make you feel a little schizophrenic because you're talking to God often. You get in the car by yourself. You don't crank the music. What do you do? You begin to talk to God. You wake up in the morning. You know, I often think about in the morning is how God was up all night. Sounds kind of strange, but I think about all the things. Most of the people that are awake at one time are awake while we're asleep. Because the biggest part of the population of the world is on the other side of the world. 
and they live in an environment that is natural to more problems and sin and pain than what we do. And so I think while I am sleeping, the biggest part of God's work and problems and sin and exposure to sin, God saw while I was just at rest. And there I am waking up, thanking God, thank you that I woke up today and that you took care of all the problems that I was able to sleep through last night. You get in the car and you're talking to God and problems arise in your life and you're talking to God and you hear of situations that cause you distress and you pause what you're doing and you bow on your knee and you talk to God and you fall into sin to something natural to your character and you lift up your eyes and you ask God's forgiveness and to help you not do that again. That's abiding with him. I pray this morning, these people, these men and women, when they lost God's presence, they responded in what seems like radical ways. But what's more terrifying to me than this is that when we've lost God's presence and it doesn't bother us, when the routine on Sunday morning services is that it will be dry and dead and lifeless and idle and apathetic. That's when it ought to bring concern. When we feel the fervor of Satan attacking us, I'm much less concerned about that because it seems as though what we find through scriptures when that's the case, people tend to call out to God and God tends to visit them. This morning, I want to encourage you that in my life, when I think of prayer, I pray for a lot of things, but there are some things that are foundational prayers that always exist. And I may go periods of time where I don't pray them every single time, but I revisit them in this very uh, well-acquainted way. Or in other words, it's like I'm bringing up to God an old conversation. God, you know how we've been talking about this for years and years and years and years? I want to bring that before you again. There are some prayers that are like that. And what I'm trying to encourage you this morning, one of those prayers that ought to be a foundational piece of what you always pray, what you always hunger for, what always a goal in your spiritual life is God, I want your presence to be more manifest among us. When that's the case, things change. Here in the New Testament, I love the superiority of the the dispensation we live in compared to old times. They carried God around in a box, theoretically. He was in a temple. And do you remember when Jesus met that woman in Samaria? And she said, you know, the Samaritans say in this mountain, and you Jews say over there on that mountain. You remember what Jesus' response to her was? The time is coming, and now is, when neither in this mountain or in any mountain you're to worship God, but that the true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. He said, the time is coming and is now. We read in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, I want to read this one verse real quickly. It says this, 
And we, speaking to his church, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up into a holy temple in the Lord. Listen to this. In whom ye also are builded together. Why? Why are we builded together? For an habitation of God through his spirit. We are put together to be a habitation, a dwelling place for God through his spirit. God wants to dwell among us. I see in the scriptures something that lines up pretty clearly, and I'm closing. If, we, if, if God clearly declares, I want to dwell with worshipers where they're at, anywhere they go, I want to dwell with them. And on the other end, God's people are saying, God, above all else, I want you to dwell in my life and in the lives of other people. I couldn't help noting in Brother Steve's prayer how he was praying for some things for himself. And as he was uttering those prayers, I wanted to be able to echo to God, God, yes, hear his prayers for himself. Hear the weaknesses that he's crying out and he's saying, God, I need your help. That's when we can know that we're drawing close to God is when we don't become focused on our own spiritual weaknesses and that continue eats up our prayers or for the, the, the physical problems that other people are beset are, but that we're looking at our brothers and sisters as temples of the living God and we're saying, God, they're hungering for your presence in their life and I am hungering for your presence in their life also, God visits churches like that when we prefer one another above preferring ourselves. And before we utter words, God, abide with me, we say, God, abide with Brother Brian. God, abide with Brother Micah. God, abide with Brother Danny and Brother Steve. God, help them. Feel your, help fill their life with your presence on this Tuesday morning that throughout the day, open doors of opportunity for them to fulfill their purpose in the way you designed them to. A church who looks at each other and doesn't pick each other apart. That's easy. That's the opposition we talked about last week. But instead says, God, fill us as your temple has a place of your habitation. Hope this morning, ask yourself the question, consider in your spirit, how often are you longing for God's presence in the lives, in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters? And if you're not, help, ask God to help you make that a staple of the things that you're seeking after in this life. Lessen the drive to do all those other things. And put that first. You know, I have found is that it was never encouraged that much when I was a kid until I got to be a teenager. Somebody started saying, you know, you need to write a prayer journal. You need to write things down. And I have found in my own life, I'm giving you practical advice here, that's helped me. Those things which are so important. Articulating here just a, a month ago, I wrote down what I wanted my good day, what I wanted days to look like in my life. Like what would be a, a day that I could rest my head at night and say, that is a day that I'm so glad I lived. Eventually it was activities that was amounted to walking with God. But it wasn't just religious things. It was going to work and finding purpose in what I did. And I can't help but think, and I thought this as I was leaving work that day. Those are the very people that Jesus took time to talk to. 
And I prayed, Lord, help me to be more like you. Conform me more to be like you. And God's presence rested upon Christ all throughout his ministry. In so much that people are attracted. You know, I think that's how Christians are meant to be. In a world of darkness, this light that people are attracted to. They can't put a finger on it. It's just the way they carry out their business. The way they live their life. The way, Brother Brian, they do loans. How they interact with the customer, you know. They just say, you know, I just like talking to him. He's just nice. He asks about my life. He cares about me. Hey, when I go out to the mailbox and I get my mail, my neighbor always stops and asks me how I'm doing and asks about the last thing I told him about my sick daughter or grandson. There's just something that is luminous that draws people and weighty in our personality that draws people to us. You know what that is? So when God's abiding with us, that's what's attracting them. That's what's drawing them. I pray this morning that's what God would make the goal of our gathering. I'm done this morning. You, you pray for me, sincerely. Pray for me. I'm feeling the cutting, and it hurts. Because it's either I keep me, or I allow God's presence to begin to be in me, and then it begins to expel the me. And that me's been around for a long time. Pray for me. Those things are not stubbornly leaving. And I want them to. And I want God's presence to rest upon us. That's our our message this morning. I pray that God would speak to your heart. As we're rising up and building, that's what we're building towards. That was the purpose of the message this morning.